Hey friends, Ashton here and welcome back to another episode of Good, True and Beautiful. I am super excited today uh, about the guest we have joining us. Two weeks ago, I get an email. One of our listeners says, um, can you tell me why Dr. Alexander Shia has not been on your show? And I pol- uh, politely responded, well, I'm not, uh, I don't know who this is. Will you tell me more about him? Long story short, she introduced me to his work, to his book, Heart and Mind. And I can tell you guys, I am beyond excited. I am super thrilled. Some of his writings and insights have been beautiful revelations for me. Um, and I, I really, I'm just super excited to see where this goes. And so he's joining us today from San Antonio. He hails from Santa Fe, New Mexico, but he was super kind and generous to share some time with us today, Dr. Alexander Shia. Thank you so much for joining us. It's delight, Ashton, and and just please, Alexander's enough. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, four yes, sir. Syllables. Four, four syllables. There we go. So, um, where I always ask this question for maybe some of our listeners that haven't crossed paths with you and your work, uh, when you introduce yourself and that work in the world, where do you begin? Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> There are a couple of things that I, I like people to know about about my about me, which leads to how this idea has arrived. Uh, I am first generation Lebanese immigrant. My parents came to the United States as infants, really, in their parents' arms um, back in the early years of the 1900s, and they came to Birmingham, Alabama. And Birmingham, Alabama, in those days, was a very difficult place for immigrants, and especially Catholic immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, so, because of the composition of Birmingham, which really was being run by the KKK, and the KKK had put all of the immigrant groups in our own neighborhoods and had sort of sealed us off, um, I was allowed or invited to 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 see the life of Lebanon in the way that that life in the Middle East has been for at least a thousand, if not 2000 or 3000 years. So one of the, one of the unique things I think that I bring as we turn to look at the gospel is those figures in those gospel stories are, are my aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, etc. It's like I live with those folks. Wow. And, and then the, the, the next piece for me is that um, I, was a, a somewhat bright kid and was fortunate enough to go to the University of Notre Dame in the 1970s when when Indy still knew how to play championship football. <laughs> and and uh, I, I was on my way to seminary after college, but I discovered that as a junior, I could get into these advanced seminars in the springtime with this really interesting, passionate, quirky little man who was Joseph Campbell. And this is before Joseph Campbell was Joseph Campbell. It was just nobody knew who Joseph Campbell was. Um, And he was teaching the theology department. And he was teaching about great story, great universal story. And his, his impact was is that as he had studied all the great sacred stories across time and across era and across culture that he saw the stories as having this four part rhythm or pattern. And that the first part of it is the, the summons to a journey. 
And secondly, the hero or the heroine is going to face tremendous trials and obstacles. And the third part is uh, receiving the gift or what his language was, the boon, the insight. And then the fourth part was the return to community or the return to ordinary life with an obligation to serve. And if you know anything about Joseph Campbell, you know that uh, the creators of Star Wars and Matrix and others of those great movies found their way to his door. Yes. He, was, he was the power behind their writing. But back in the 70s, when, when I heard Joseph Campbell describe this, I, I thought, is there a connection? Could there be a connection between this four-part journey that he's described in every world culture and how Christianity ended up choosing four texts that we call the gospel. And so I, I chewed on that uh, idea and tried to force it and create it and find the thread for some uh, like 35 years uh, until finally in the year 2000 uh, on a cold, windy night in, in the high desert of New Mexico, um, I just got hit by a Mack truck, and uh, I was reading a book by a theologian in Oxford called The Four Witnesses, and the Robin Griffith Jones gave the history of each community at the time that we believe the gospel was written for them, that particular gospel text written for a particular community. And as soon as I saw his narrative I saw something that I knew as a clinical psychologist, which is also part of my training and, and life. Um, I saw something that looked like my clinical notes. And also something that matched everything that I knew from mythology and Joseph Campbell and, and, and my search through the scriptures. And there was the thread hmm. that, that each gospel text is written to a particular question. It's not written to the question about the life of Jesus. And if I could just sort of step into that in a moment, this text that we call the Gospel of Matthew is written to the question about how do I wake up and face change? And every piece of that gospel is written to that question. And it looks as if we're reading the life of Jesus, but it's not the life of Jesus for the life of Jesus. It's really sort of the life of Jesus in us as we try to wake up and face change. <laughs> Joseph Campbell's first, first part of the great story, hearing the summons. And then the next text is Mark, which is the text of tremendous trials and obstacles and how one might walk through if we use the metaphor, the valley of the shadow of death by the power of the resurrection, that whole text of Mark written to the question of how do I, uh, how do I live? How do I keep my heart somewhat even in a time of tremendous trial, obst obstacle, and we might even call suffering. And then the, the third text is John and Remember, for, for Joseph Campbell, that third part is receiving the boon or the gift or the insight. And the text of John is written to the experience of joy. And I, I was just listening to uh, one of your earlier interviews talk about the experience of joy and how joy increases our creativity. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, so that the text of John is written to that inner experience of receiving joy, uh, receiving for some people that joy might be an ecstasy for others. It might be a deep sense of calm and equanimity. And then the fourth part back to Campbell was you know, returning to community with uh, greater responsibility. And so the, the next text of Luke, Luke Acts actually is one text, is written to that question of how do we serve this new idea of the human family when we are met with such oppression, both politically, culturally, and religiously? Wow. And there, and there, and there we have it. It's like it, it, we could we could open up what's going on in each one of those four communities when the when the text is revealed to them or written for them. But essentially, what I'm describing is these four texts are one of the world's great texts and all across all time of the journey of transformation. And we have it with the added content of the presence of Jesus the Christ. But nevertheless, this text is as practical as the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism. This text is as lofty as the great Jewish text of coming out of Egypt. This text matches the rhythm, the rhythm of all the indigenous peoples of the world and their creation myths. Uh, we, we have here something, and I like to say, as, as Campbell would say, if something is true, to say it's only true in one way, that's a really small truth. It's true everywhere. It's, if something is true, it's true in a thousand ways. It's yeah. true in two thousand ways. Yeah. And, and what I'm describing is how I can trust that these are precisely the right texts because at the level of the practice of transformation, as both a spiritual director and a clinical psychologist, I don't know a better text written anywhere in the world. Ooh, okay, so many questions. <laughs> um, so I, I think the story, the background story, you did an amazing job of unpacking that. Here you are, 20, 21, 22 years old. Don't even really know that you're at the feet of Joseph Campbell learning this. For 35 <laughs> years, the pattern of four shows up everywhere. I think you quote, yes, the hero's journey, uh, a bit of Carl Jung. I think somewhere uh, there was something there. The Catholic baptism. Absolutely. Um, indigenous cultures. You, this law, this, this four pattern thing stuck with you for 30 years before the big light bulb came on. Well, and, and it, 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 it just, it, the four, the fourfold pattern kept coming to me. It's like everywhere I would study when I was studying the spiritual classics of Christianity, there it was everywhere. When I started, when I did my clinical work in psychology, every psychological method knows this pattern. It's like they've got different ways of doing it and different content for it, but at the level of an, of an architecture yeah. uh, that, that's underneath everything, there it is. Wow, wow, wow. So um, two little riffs as we kind of get into uh, unpacking some of these. Number one, um, how do you address the question of when you go, yeah, the, these texts are addressing four questions 
when some skeptics may enter this conversation and go, whoa, 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 wait a minute, you're you're missing the point. Tell tell me more about Jesus, more about Jesus. H- how do you handle that that walking that line of saying, hold on here, I, I'm not I'm not removing the content as you call it. Um, we really are using these to address these questions, and then I guess also hold my hand on understanding the historical importance of Matthew, Mark, John, Luke versus Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, as we've come to know it for the last umpteen thousand years. Umpteen five hundred years. Umpteen five hundred years. There you go. Um, Where would you like me to start, Ashton? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Let's go with the order of the Gospels first. So um, early Christianity knew the sequence of transformation. And uh, we, what we have uh, in, in the Bible is a, a, is a Sunday reading cycle that was created in Christianity in the 4th and the 5th century. And we can talk about how and why they created that. But here's the reality. Judaism practiced this great festival in the springtime that we call Passover. However... Anybody who's been to Passover of late and been part of a, a Jewish household and they bring out the Haggadah script and, the, and, and, and they've got all the rituals and all the, the, the bitter herbs and the, um, and the singing of Dayenu and all of that, powerful, beautiful, true, none of it would Jesus have known. Uh, that's not how Passover was celebrated during the time of Jesus. That was not what the disciples were doing with Jesus on that last night. Um, what was going on in at that moment with Passover is so instructive, and it's so powerful connector to how we end up with four gospel texts. The evening went something like this. Um, we have to remember that in this the, in the time of Jesus, Judaism was largely. Uh, Greek, so many Greek ideas and Greek customs had come into Judaism. And the the Passover meal had no script to it. It was much more like a Socratic method, where the head of the table led everyone at the table in, a, in an examination of their life by asking a series of very important questions. And the first question soon after everyone gathered at table was something like this. The head of the household would say, and you can certainly imagine Jesus if, if being at the head of the house, being at the, the head of the table with, with all of his followers around. We know that our ancestors in Egypt were slaves. And we know that, Mo, that Yahweh raised up Moses and offered them a path of liberation. And we know that our ancestors had to make a choice about whether to go with Moses or not. As we sit here tonight, where in your life tonight are you locked down in a slavery? We can put that in our language. Where tonight are you locked down in a fear, a paralysis, a despair? Where in your life right now do you feel like not free? Talk, talk, talk around the table. And what's so interesting, just knowing that that piece of this ancient Passover meal is that they're not reciting history for history's sake. They're reciting history as a present moment reality in our lives right now at the table. 
And so then they go on to the next question. Later in the evening, we know that our ancestors who left Egypt with Moses went across the Red Sea into a wilderness, and it was a wilderness unto death. Where in your life right now are you in a wilderness unto death? Perhaps it's a death that the death of some part of your life, uh, an emotional death, a spiritual death. Perhaps you are facing a serious illness. Where in your life right now are you in a wilderness unto death? Talk, talk, talk around the table. Later in the evening came the third question. We know that our ancestors eventually crossed the Jordan into the promised land. They arrived in the promised land. They came to know in that moment that the promise was true. Where in your life tonight are you hearing God's new promise? Where in your life tonight are you experiencing that God's promise is true? And what, what I, I love about this reality is that as they are telling the story that evening, um, they, they're locating each one of these questions in our present moment life, not in a linear sense, but understanding that our life is in each four of these places altogether. Uh, right, right. And so lastly, at the very end of the meal, when they take the last cup of wine, which was the cup of Elijah, the, the head of the household would ask the last question, which is, and now we know that our ancestors took 200 years after having arrived in the promised land. It took them 200 years to create the nation state of Israel. Where tonight, as we come to the end of Passover, are you committing yourself? What tonight are you committing yourself to, to do for your family, to do for your community, to do for your own life, to do for your nation? over this next year and before by by god's will we might gather for passover again next year so so the, there, four, the four patterns even there in passover well absolutely and and we understand that the passover evening was a was a, a moment of spiritual reflection for the community by which they understood that they knew the pattern of their journey with god they knew it hmm. that they were that what was so powerful about the coming out of Exodus was not a historical event, but that the historical event revealed to them the pattern of their life with Yahweh over and over and over and over again. Well, early Christians who are utterly Jews, devout Jews, we they assumed they had already lived this pattern and knew this pattern in their life. They didn't have to recreate the pattern. Jesus the Christ didn't change the pattern. The reality of Jesus the Christ added, in our way of understanding, new content and new depth to the pattern. But it in no way needed to change the pattern. The, the Jesus so, the Christ revealed what was always true, always happening. Absolutely. Yep. This pattern has always been true, and we, we can talk about the Christ from which the, the Christ is that breath that came out from God the moment that the cosmos was created. Yep. 
The Christ is an eternal reality, which is already everywhere. You don't go anywhere to bring the Christ. You go everywhere to discover the Christ that is already there. Because the Christ is present in, a Christ, in the Christian way of understanding, the Christ is present in every grain of sand of the cosmos. Perfectly hidden, perfectly revealed. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so the early Christians, knowing the journey that they make with Yahweh, wanted to add the content of Jesus the Christ to the journey. And so when Irenaeus in the second century says, we must have four texts, this is, the, this is the strangest thing ever to the last 500 years of biblical scholarship because we've all been trained. We're looking for the true stories of Jesus. <laughs> Not we're looking for the four true stories of transformation. Oh, that's, yes. that's what Irenaeus was telling us. We are going, what is going to be true about these Gospels are that they are going to um, deepen what we know about the fourfold path of transformation that we as Jews have celebrated and prayed and lived by for centuries. We've been more we've been more interested in arguing whether Mark and Matthew are saying the same thing versus no 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 you got to keep peeling the onion there's there are things underneath the thing going on here. Absolutely and and I mean, what I get so excited about Ashton is I love the last 500 years of scholarship, and so much of it bears upon the work that I'm bringing forth. But I have something that's, that's we, you know, in my mind, we've got to get over it. The last 500 years of scholarship is over. That metaphor is dry as dust, and it's gone. Mm-hmm. It's time for us to do the journey, which is we need to let it go down and be quiet and discover a new way into the same great sacred mystery. And what I'm offering is um, just one of what I expect and hope will be many new ways. But the new way is not going to be looking back at the life of Jesus as a historical reality alone. It's going to be looking at each one of these texts as telling us a spiritual practice for those who follow in that life. Wow. So, so break down for me how, um, you know, you basically say, hey, Matthew's addressing how do we face change? Mark, how do we move through suffering? John, how do we receive joy? Luke, uh, how do we mature in service? Break down how we can, we can all be in that pattern of transformation, but that we can all each individually be answering these questions in our own way. It's not necessarily that, well, we're just answering the question of how do we face change? We're, we're always swimming in the midst of all of this at all times. Well, we are, because all four questions are always going on in us. And I'd like to say, you know, we've got an aspect of ourselves right now, which is facing change. And we've got an aspect of ourselves, which is out in the wilderness. And we probably have another aspect of ourselves, which is in a place of tremendous joy or excitement or uh, deep sense of peace. And we've got another aspect of ourselves, which is we're, we're, we're trying to serve. Mm. However, if you stand back from your life, I would suggest that probably one of these four questions is more to the fore, to the front, yeah. and the other the other three are a little bit uh, in the background. 
And so your invitation, I mean, I think this invitation of transformation is combining the heart and mind. That's so much of, I mean, it's the name of the book, but I, I think that that's really what you're getting at is we can't, if we want to move forward, we can't just do it in our head. It can't just be from the heart. It's, it's together. There's a oneness here. Is that right? That would be my perspective. And it's, it's a great sadness to me that that our tradition right now seems to be communities which say, I want you to check your heart at the, at the door and other <laughs> communities that say, I want you to check your brain at the door. And I don't want either of those. Yeah. Um, but I, I want the heart and the mind working together to give us deep spiritual practice because boy, if we need anything these days, we need spiritual practice mm. is what's going to get us through this really chaotic time. Uh, with a sense of equanimity and purpose is spiritual practice. Talk about, uh, you mentioned, um, as the book gets going, quite a bit about followers of the way. Um, hold my hand on this idea as it was understood 2,000 years ago. Well, again, early Christians, I mean, our first name, as we're still part of the pattern of or the household of Judaism, our first name is we are called followers of the way. And what I want to suggest is, I mean, we've thought of the way as the way of love, or we've thought of the way as the way of justice, or we thought of it as the way of Jesus. Uh-uh. Um, what we're looking at in early Christianity is a process of transformation, which was they understood the process of transformation as the way of Jesus the Christ. And it was as clearly defined as if today you said you were attending a 12 step meeting. Mm. This pattern of change, ordeal, joy, serve, whatever the words you put on that pattern early Christianity put into everything they did because what we were teaching people was the reality of Jesus the Christ is an energy and a presence for transformation, and here's how you walk the map. For today, for here, for now, for this for, moment. For now. And so these great texts that we call the gospel are not the answer texts. They're far more effective than that. They are the way that we will discover the answer anew in every generation and in every human heart. Last evening, I was with a group and we spent a lot of time talking about the text of John and particularly the account of Jesus and Nicodemus. And, and Nicodemus is such an important figure for us to be in relationship with, to be in right relationship with. We need to know the Nicodemus figure inside of ourselves and, and Nicodemus's place at the table, which is never at the head. Uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus with this question. Uh, Jesus, I, I see how... I see your goodness. I see the, the, the magnificent work of God that you're doing. But Jesus, let's talk. You and I know our tradition has always taught us that it is only if a person has Jewish blood from a Jewish mother that they have the privilege and the right to know Yahweh. 
why, Jesus, are you giving this right away to everyone? And what Nicodemus is doing here is Nicodemus is asking the old tribal question. Nicodemus, this whole thing about being reborn, you hold the, the mystical transcendence on all the texts that have been written about that. This is a confrontation between Nicodemus, a good man, a great teacher, but he's locked in a thought about yesterday. Someone told him and someone who told him told that person going back hundreds of years that Jewish blood is the only way that you have the right to fully know Yahweh. And Jesus is going to upend Nicodemus and say to him, because Nicodemus now is the natural law guy. Hmm. I, want, I want everyone to hear that. Jesus is going to say to all of us who think that we know the natural law of God, Nicodemus, you don't know where the wind comes from. So every time anyone in our tradition or anyone across the world in any tradition wants to say, but we've always been taught, whoops, hmm. we've just taken the Nicodemus seat at the table. And Nicodemus has got this important role to offer us, which is to, to question us and to make sure that we don't move too fast in wrong directions. But Nicodemus is never the final answer. Hmm. Because we know that what's true about our God is that revelation continues to, that God's revelation continues to open up in us. It's not that God's revelation is changing, I don't think, but it's our ability to understand that revelation is constantly widening. Becoming more diverse, more universal, more, more there's always a seat at the table. Right. And, 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 I mean, I think we're learning today that, you know, God, God's natural law is a law of love, but we are now understanding love in dimensions that we couldn't have understood even a hundred years ago. Hmm. Well, well. So tradition falls too closely to the Nicodemus voice when it comes to a moment when we have a profound new question tradition oftentimes is not going to be our best teacher. Interesting. New question. Tradition isn't always the answer. No, that, that, that's exactly the confrontation between Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus is my good seminary professor or <laughs> my parents or my best buddy who I, I learned so much from, but, but also they gave me their blindness. Hmm. Not by intent. And I haven't gone back and stood before God and said, open my heart and teach me wider. Hmm. So that's the invitation then. Um, an opening, a spaciousness, um, moving from head to heart. I, is, that, is that what I'm hearing? Uh, it's a beautiful way of saying it. Yeah, yeah. And. And, and I would also say it, it bears upon the work that our ancestors gave us in this season called Lent Easter, which was nothing to do about remembering that Jesus came out of the tomb. The question of Lent Easter is, is Jesus coming out of the tomb in your heart now? <laughs> That's the proclamation. Let's go. Uh, yes. Otherwise, we're doing yesterday's sacred newspaper. 
Hold on, hold on. I need you to repeat that. That was too good. There's, there's, when there's goosebumps on my arm, I need to hear it again. Uh, the, the original intent wasn't the proclamation that Jesus isn't in the tomb. No, it's not a historical proclamation at all. It's, it's, it's as deeply true as that proclamation might be. Lent Easter was crafted because by the end of the second century, which is when this season started to be designed, we were coming upon socioeconomic and cultural questions that we couldn't answer. And we were beginning to fall back on tradition uh, yes, rather yes. than bringing ourselves as community before God and saying, uh, we know that there's some incredible part of your message that we've confused. Teach us again. Teach us wider. Teach us deeper. So this is an atonement theory. <laughs> this is, no, there is something bursting forth here and now. And oh, by the way, it's, it's in you. Right. It's in us. It's in you. And it's new and we know that, that there's a part of us as humans who love to just be, to do what yesterday did because it doesn't call so much responsibility from us. Hmm. Hold the course, and, keep the norm. Yeah. And what was happening at the end of the third, second century as we go into the third century is Roman persecution was lessening. Uh, and the Christian communities now had more ability to talk with each other because we know that for much of the time of persecution, if you were caught carrying a letter from one Christian community to the next, you could be executed summarily. So, so now we begin to talk to each other and it's like we're really curious. What are you doing? How, what are you doing on Sunday mornings? How are you? What, what, what ways are you baptizing? How do you understand Jesus the Christ? That are all these great questions, but we, we literally swapped notes back then. We, we began to swap notes <laughs> this long before the internet, and 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 then we began to go, "Oh, but you believe differently than how I believe." Huh. And curiosity turned to concern, and concern actually ended up being theological debate, and theological debate ended up actually becoming theological war hmm. well, versus and, resurrection rewriting history. Yes. Yeah. And, and the church said we can never let dogmatics overtake spiritual practice. And therefore I want, I, I want Christians to hear this dogmatics should never overtake spiritual practice. <laughs> and so we should be praying more. We should be silent more. <laughs> well, we, should, we should be, um, praying together. I mean, what the church did was they created a three-day Lent. And, you know, like most organizations, what starts out as three days ends up as a hundred. But, <laughs> but it was a three-day Lent where we came together to read particularly passages from the Gospel of John, which had this opening about a new revelation, um, and to pray with each other and to search our hearts for how perhaps out of fear or perhaps out of some desire just to hold on to yesterday, we've kept ourselves away from hearing God's new voice in our midst now. And we body fasted, not because of 
we wanted to be penitential. We, we, were, we were fasting because we wanted to pray with our bodies. We wanted our bodies to ache for oneness, to ache for more vitality, to ache for more love, that we wanted the hunger and maybe a little headache uh, to be reminders of the fact that we really wanted to hear and act more deeply in God's voice. I think you're right that that's uh, one of the lines that, that spoke to me um, in heart and mind was was absorbing the behavior of a new way. Mm. Um, and, and it sounds to me that this this invitation to spiritual maturity, which I really think you're you're holding our hand in, in this book and saying, hey, come on, there's so much more. The water's deeper. It's more beautiful. There's so much more here. Um, you, you wrote, our ego selves need to become grounded. We have to learn more than a theory. We must absorb the behavior of a new way. Um, and my senses are that's what you're getting at there when you talk about regrounding in these practices. But it, it isn't. I mean, here is a guy with too many masters and a doctorate, and I love education. <laughs> How many lectures do I give every year? How many do I attend? And yet, if we want to talk about transformation, transformation is never a course. Yep. Now, tra- transformation does not happen because I go attend a weekend festival. Yep. Um, what those do is those open us up to a new idea. But the opening to a new idea is not the same as actually changing. You got to come down off the mountain. You got to come down and you've got to do the hard grunt work to change your attitudes and your behavior in your everyday life. Mm-hmm. Has your experience been, um, as I've recently moved into just some contemplative practices, that you give yourself over to such disciplines and it's I, the, the, it, it'll hit you like a ton of bricks where all of a sudden something that had haunted you, an angst, a frustration, an aggravation, something you haven't been able to forgive, out of nowhere, it just seems to dissipate. And, yeah. and when I connect the dots looking backwards, I go, oh, it wasn't anything that happened today. This was a drip by drip giving myself over to such, I guess, the discipline of maturing in the spiritual practice and, 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 and discovering a reality, which I call grace, yeah. which does not start in the mind or the ego. Right. Right. It, it, it wells up, it falls down, whatever that language you want to use to describe it. But you know, when it happens that it's not something you created, mm. you, you brought yourself to the place where it might be possible to happen. Rediscovery, remembering, reconnecting. Yeah, yeah. With that, that which was always there. Um, always. Yeah, yeah. We, how forgetful we are of such grace. Um, we yeah. are in it. Our, our tradition uh, until of late has not given us much opportunity to touch that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness! I could do this all day. Um, oh. <laughs> so, uh, as we as we enter into kind of the Lent Easter run of the spiritual calendar, what would you invite our listeners? How how would you invite our listeners 
into this season because I feel like one of the great gifts you've brought me is just historical reference to things that, to be quite honest, I was clueless about. Um, yeah. And and when I relearn uh, or when I'm awakened to the why behind so much of this, uh, the grounded side of nature and so much of these things, it is, man, it makes my days electric. So how, how would you invite us to enter into the Lent and Easter season? Well, I mean, there, there, here are a couple of touchstones, and, and I don't know what sort of tradition you may or may not belong to, and whether it's low ritual or high ritual or whatever, but um, here, are some, here are some physical outer things that tradition has given us to help us understand this season. Uh, first of all, the wearing of purple and the putting of purple before our eyes. Uh, purple is the royal culture, is the royal color. If purple in no way is penitential. Um, that this season is about each of us and collectively we claiming our royal nature, our authentic diversity before God. And so the, the first prayer of Lent is, take by my prayer in what I do this season, take me more deeply into my unique diverse and authentic voice. And let me understand that that unique, authentic voice is royal. And that's why I put purple before my eyes. Secondly, that what this season is about is helping us discover my, my, my unique authenticity and my desire to be with others who also want to draw together in their unique authenticity. But, we have a new human task that's never happened before on the planet in, that we know of in our history. And it's what we're reaching for, I think, in this century. And that is, can we be a community which, which celebrates diversity mm-hmm. and yet also a community where each person understands that by bending my authenticity to the harmony of the communion – that that enables and revitalizes my authenticity, and it also makes a beautiful diadem of the communion. And we have never had that type of, of community. Our communities have always been a low tribal community where we have to be where we have to be bounded by a uniformity. So you said bending our unique authenticity to the harmony of the communion. Is that what you, I'm trying to repeat back what you just said. Yes. (laughs) Ending our unique authenticity to the harmony of the communion. (laughs) Let's go. That is salty. You know, and, and Christianity is the first tradition on record in human history, which found a way to be pan tribal. Everybody let's go. Bring it all in. There's a seat at the table. A- absolutely. And then we went away from it. Mm-hmm. Pan tribal. And now, and now we've got to rediscover our early practices that enable that to be so. This is why Christianity exploded across the Mediterranean for 500 years. Yeah. Not just that we were, not just that we were the power of love, but we were the power of love that created people of diversity as a communion. Now, isn't, I mean, I don't have very many places. I, in fact, I have very few places in my life 
other than my relationship with a few individuals where I can say there's a community that I know that community is there for me to discover and revel in my authenticity. Mm. And we are just beginning to imagine a type of community where each of us in our individual authenticity want to build a harmony in our midst. Right, right, yes. I feel like that's a whole nother podcast conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's, it's um, if if I give enough, if I'm given enough years and enough enough breath, I will write my text about just the Gospel of John, huh. because the Gospel of John has the blueprint to do this in it. Hmm. It was that was the intent of this text was written to the community of Ephesus, which had been birthed in the idea of the beautiful diversity of the human family. And yet they were now, they had, they had retreated back into all the old patriarchy, all the old tribalism, all the old hierarchy, the ins and the outs, etc. And John gave them this text so that they might have the spiritual practice to come back to the diverse union that God intended. Well, well, how would you invite, um, our listeners, as they uh, lean into the mystery of resurrection um, this spring, that not to you know not to say that we can't um, think through, sit in, bask in the idea of yeah, the tomb's empty, but h- how can we carry resurrection on to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? I- I'm I'm interested to hear the practice of keeping that awareness, that posture, that electricity uh, alive way after the rah-rah ends on Sunday. Right. Um, it's hard. I want The first thing I want to say is it's hard. There's very little in our culture that supports bringing that reality back into everyday, ordinary, humdrum life. Uh, and you need to know that the first thing that's going to happen as you try to bring it back is that somebody or someone's perhaps close to you or not close to you are going to try to take away from you. <laughs> um, our culture doesn't support growth and transformation. It's like there are so many people around us who actually are afraid to see us grow because it means that they might have that potential as well. That, that, they, that they will begin subtly or overtly to shut us out and shut us down. Uh, so that the next thing you need to do is you need to seek out those friends in those places that they know about transformation. They know how, how um, important and how arduous this task is mm. and will be there for you. Mm. Um, you also uh, need to, to, to know that you will, as you, you don't just discover in a, in, in a great moment of realization what your authentic voice is or how to live authentically. It's a, it's a process of trial and error. It's a process. Of, I, I think this is what I'm supposed to do and trying it. But uh, no, it's not quite that. Trying again, trying again, trying again, trying again. It, it, it's, a, it's a little bit like sculpting. Hmm. Uh, with stone, where you just kind of sort of keep chipping the stone until you see this beautiful form emerge. Fail forward, fall upward. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then find those people that they show you the wound and they say shalom. 
Amen. And, and, and pray. There is a presence by whatever name you give it. For me, it's Jesus the Christ. But there is a presence that wants your authenticities. And if, and if you keep following the thread, that, that presence will reveal more and more to you. Hmm. So, but it's, it's not probably not a one-moment flash-in-the-pan realization. It is a slow, gradual reshaping of yourself. Day by day, the journey. Day by day, and a lot of what looks like failure. I feel like if I keep going here, we're going to go for about another three hours. So for our listeners um, that maybe want to follow you and your work, where's the best place you would invite them to go find out more information about you? Quadrados and everything else you're doing. Please go to my website, please. Q U A D R A T O S dot com. And once you are there, you are going to find a page of interviews, and this beautiful podcast will be there shortly. Beautiful. But there are the all the interviews that I've done with Rob Bell. I, I think I've done seven or eight with Rob now. Uh, I, uh, until Peter Rollins came along, I was, I was Rob's uh, most frequent, <laughs> the village elder at the Rob. Yeah. Case. Um, also you're going to find, uh, some, the films there that have been done by the work of the people. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Is with me. Uh, some are free. Uh, some are, are there for a small rental fee. And then there are what I call the companion guides uh, the heart and mind community guides, which is a process. If this is not for professionals alone, this is anybody. You want to read this book, not as a book study, but you want to read heart and mind to open your life to the deep pattern of Jesus, the Christ working with you. We've got these guides and you could take a year or two, or we know at least a couple of communities which have taken three years mm. to very gradually work through these guides. It's an experience, and it's a transformation. It's not a lecture. Mm, beautiful. Well, I can tell you, one of the richest aspects of my life is coming across new voices um, that wake me up in a new way, uh, hand me some guideposts, some maps, and uh, you, my friend, are, are uh, on that list. So I'm super grateful for your inter- uh, generosity and uh, definitely the work that you've given the world. Thank you, Ashton. And I, I too, did not know of your voice, and I'm delighted uh, to make this connection. Well, I'll, be follow- I'll be following you. <laughs> well, we will uh, somehow, some way. I, I, I got a feeling our paths are going to connect again. Um, I'm sure that as I keep diving into your work, all it's going to do is turn up more questions, and uh, maybe down the road we can have you on again. Would love that. Right, Take bye-bye. care. Hey, before you go, don't forget to hit subscribe right there on your phone. That's probably where you're listening. Uh, And if you enjoyed this, would you mind leaving us a review? One of the things that we're wanting to do is get this information out to as many people as we can. And we are finding that uh, when people leave good, true, and beautiful reviews, uh, that helps us get this information out more and more to people all across the world. I do not take it lightly 
that you invite me to ride shotgun with you in your car. Uh, you allow these conversations to be a part of your jogs. You allow these conversations to be a part of the communities and families and businesses that you've been entrusted. Uh, I do not take that lightly at all, and I am thrilled uh, that you have joined us here at this table, at this conversation. There's always a seat left. There's always room for more. Uh, and we are just so grateful for you guys joining us here at Good, True, and Beautiful. And as you approach this week, may you pause by the orchid, listen to the bluebirds sing, and be love.